Wonderful. All right. So welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Fraud. I am the Assistant Program Director for Drisha. Very excited to have everyone back for the second session of our class Alter Ego uh, with Rabbi David Silver. Uh, last week, we got started looking at the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah in uh, the Tanakh in, in, in Bereshit. And so we started looking at the beginning of chapter 20 uh, with the story of Avimelech and their trip to, to uh, go and his taking of Sarah and the similarities and differences with the story that we saw earlier with Pharaoh uh, taking Sarah in Egypt, if, if, if sorry, for those of you who were here back in the fall when we were doing more of a, a focus on Abraham, you saw that, that story discussed in depth there as well. So this week we are going to be picking up there, continuing in chapter 20 and moving forward in the text. Uh, and so we're very happy to, to have everyone else, or if anyone is joining us here for the first time, we're very excited that you are joining us today and thank you for being here. Uh, a few quick notes about Zoom. Uh, we always appreciate it if folks are able to keep their videos on. It gives us a bit of a sense of who's in the room and how people are reacting. We will be pausing at a few points for questions and answers, so please feel free to hold, hold any questions or comments for those breaks, although we also do have a chat function, and folks should feel free to use the chat function to, to share if they want to chime in a little bit more in real time. Uh, and for folks who are following us on Facebook Live, you can also... Uh, put in comments on Facebook Live and we'll make sure to relay them to Rabbi Silver for those Q&A sessions. Um, other than that, uh, we also appreciate if folks are able to be careful to keep themselves on mute to avoid any background noise or distractions. And if anyone has any tech questions or anything else going on, audio issues, please feel free to send me a direct chat and I will be happy to help you. Uh, other than that, I'm going to turn it over to Rabbi Silver, and we'll get started learning. Okay, thank you, Michael. Um, okay, so we're going to pick up. We're in the middle of the Avimelech story. That is to say, Abraham travels to the land of the Plishtim to Gror. And once again, he says that Sarah, Sarah, Sarah is, his, is his sister. And Avimelech grabs her. God intervenes and... Uh, instructs Avimelech to return Sarah to her husband, and furthermore, that Abraham is a prophet, a Navi, first time we encounter that term in the Tanakh, and he'll pray for you when you will live. And we discussed that. And Avimelech gets up early next morning, we're told in the eighth verse of chapter 20, he calls all of his servants. He tells them all that it's been communicated to him. People are very frightened. And uh, then he summons Abraham. So that's what we got up to last time in the ninth pasuk of chapter 20. It says, Vayikra Avimelech li Avraham, Vayomelo, Meosito lanu, Mechatati lach, Kiveto lai viamam lachti, Chataogdola, Masima Sheloye osu, Asita imadi. So we focused on the word lasso to do. What have you done? What have you done? What have you done? You've done things that ought not to be done. And we left by pointing out that actually he hasn't done anything. He did speak. He did say that his wife is his sister. But the only person who actually did anything is Abimelech himself. 
And we have this expression, And that expression, uh, things that should not be done, you have done, and ought not to be done, there's an echo of that particular expression later in the Chumash, actually there are two echoes. But the one I want to mention uh, presently is one that appears later in chapter 29. In chapter 29, that's the story when Yaakov has run away from home to escape his brother's anger and to find a wife. And he ends up in the house of his uncle, in the house of Lavan, that's Rivka's brother. And um, he's, he stays there for a while, for a month. And Lavan says to him, because you're my brother, you should work for nothing. That's in chapter 29. Because you're my brother, you should work for nothing. Tell me, what are your wages? Maybe someday we'll get there and study that story. It's interesting from a million perspectives. There's no evidence whatsoever that Yaakov was, was in fact working or actually intending to work. He came there to find a wife, essentially, and to escape. Because you're my brother, you should work for nothing, which means I want you to work. What it, tell me what your wages are. And Yaakov says to Rabban, I'll work for you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. He's already met Rachel earlier. He says he loved Rachel. So I'll work seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter, to which Lovin gives his answer. This is in chapter 29. I'd rather give it to you than to anybody else, which is a typical Lovin answer. He didn't say yes. What he said was no one else will have her. But what he didn't say was when. Yaakov said, I worked seven years for Rachel, your daughter. Nobody else is going to get her. Which leaves open the door, of course, that, well, you can have her. No one else will have her, but you're having her. May not be a function of working seven years. Maybe it's 14 years. Who knows? As many, the Chumash already leaves that open. As we begin to understand love in a little better. In any event, so Yaakov works for seven years. That's what the Torah said. Felt like a few days, he was focused on Rachel. And then as we know, then Yaakov approaches Lavan in the 21st Pasuk of chapter 29, Hava Tishti, give me my wife. Can't get out all the details of it. Um, so it says, Lavan et So Lavan assembled all the people of his place and he makes a party. Party means drinking. Mishteh is to drink. And we know that drinking, among other things, can dull one's senses. Can dull your senses. That's how it functions in the book of Breshit. Where do we encounter drinking in the book of Breshit? So we have already encountered it twice. We encountered it with Noah, who gets drunk in his, in his, in his tent. Maybe he was experimenting with wine. We have it with the story of Lot and his daughters. We actually have it, interestingly enough, in chapter 27. People don't notice that typically. But in chapter 27, when Yaakov uh, pretends to be Esau, and he brings back, his mother prepares food for him to bring to his father to get the blessing. In chapter 27, so the Torah said he gave him the food that Rivka had prepared. And then the Torah added, Chapter 27, we find that verse. Chapter 27, 
And he brought him wine and he drank. Little, little four words people don't notice. So that not only did Yaakov give Yitzhak the food, but he gave him wine, he gave him yayin. And yayin those the senses. Yaakov was concerned that Yitzhak might figure out, though he's blind, he might figure out that it's not actually Esau. So to dull the senses, he gives him yayin. And we have it one other place as well in the Torah, in the book of Breshit, one other place where we have wine. Gamilus Yitzchak. Excuse me? Gamilus Yitzchak. What's Gamilus Yitzchak? When they make a party, when he's, when he's, when Sarah's Gomel Yitzchak. Oh, yeah. Well, it doesn't actually mention wine specifically. I meant the place where it actually mentions Mishta. It mentions Mishta there, but it doesn't mention wine. Yeah, it could be. That is possible. But I had something else in mind in terms of wine, and that is. When the brothers come down to Egypt and they bring Binyamin and they invite him to Joseph's house to eat with him, and they're very concerned, why is he inviting us to his house? And uh, in any event, they sit down to eat. And what does it say? Let's see. Um, at the end of chapter 43, they're eating in Joseph's house. He gives Binyamin five times the others. And the last verse, Vayishtu, vayishkuru imo. Vayishtu, they drank. Vayishkuru, they became filled with drink. We would say drunk. And of course, the point is what Joseph's about to do, once again, is to place his goblet in the sack of Binyamin to trick them, to fool them. And in order to fool and trick people and take advantage of people, one way to do that is to give them something to drink. That's how wine figures for the most part in the book of Breshit. It's something that dulls your senses. And, uh, and it doesn't allow you to focus properly on what you have to do. We should never forget that the Torah forbids the priest who is doing God's service to drink. So I don't want to get into the valorization of wine that we find in many circles, but the Chumash is clear, as clear as could possibly be. Why is a dangerous thing? Enable someone to catch you off guard, to you, trick you, to fool you, and to cause you to do things that you ordinarily might not do. So that's what Yaakov gives uh, Yitzchak, but he wants to fool and trick him. And now Lovan gives, makes a big party by Yas Mishteh. He makes a party. And we're told by Hiba Erev, came to, came to pass at night. Erev is the night, nightfall. He brings Leah and substitutes Leah for Rachel. And Yaakov, and Yaakov in the morning, Yaakov wakes up and behold, it's Leah. Says to Lavan, why did you deceive me? I worked seven years for Rachel. Why did you deceive me? In other words, he deceives him. It's, he makes a party at night. Now, nowadays we have weddings at night, but it's fair to assume, I'm assuming, that typically parties in biblical times were made in the daytime and not at night, especially given the fact that they have no, there's no light at night. It's hard to see. So 
what Robin is doing is setting up the situation where number one, Yaakov is, can't really see very well, which of course has echoes in the story of Yitzchak. That's how Yaakov tricked Yitzchak. Yitzchak is blind, takes advantage of, of Yitzchak's blindness. And on top of that, he gave him wine to drink. And here there's a mishkeh. We can presume wine. And uh, Yaakov doesn't realize it. Two sisters, maybe they look alike, who knows? In any event, he says to Laban, what did you do? And Laban's answer is instructed for us in chapter 20. Such a thing is not done in our place. To give the younger daughter before the older daughter. So he doesn't say me, he says, he gathers all the people of the town together. And gathering of the town together for Laban is a way of saying, I understand perfectly what you want. I know we had a deal. What can I do? This is the rule of the town. Now, whether Laban is aware of the fact that Yaakov took the blessing that Yitzhak had intended to the older brother is not clear. Is he saying, maybe where you came from, the youngest substitutes for the older, but over here, we, we have a we don't, we don't behave that way over here. Or maybe Laban's unaware of that, but the text is aware of it. And the, the, the narrative voice of the Bible is connecting the two stories, which are already connected through the wine and already connected through the, through, through, the, through the darkness. So of course, one story plays off the other. But my point over here with this long-winded, but I think important nonetheless, a point, is that Lavan and Abimelech are kindred spirits. They do, they, it's exactly the same thing. It's a person who likes to blame others or involve others in decisions that he's making. He's making it, made it from day one. No one else will have her, which is true. Lavan never lies. Lavan always tells the truth. He's the biggest liar in the world, but he never lies. No one else will have her. That's what he said. You'll, you'll get her another seven years. But in any event, that's Bim Komeinu. So that's what Abimelech is doing in our chapter. He gathers, he speaks to all the people. What does that have to do with the people? Yes, God did say, if you don't behave yourself, I'll kill you and all that you possess. But there's no sense whatsoever that the people are responsible for what Abimelech does in any direct sense. So the calling of the people is a way to somehow involve them in all this. Somehow it's, you know, it's, as Abimelech said, Agoy God, would you slay even a righteous nation? God said nothing about a nation. God said about you, Abimelech, what you did. So he, it becomes the nation already. It becomes a, an offense for all the people. Not that communities don't share responsibility, but it sounds better coming from someone, someone other than the person who himself committed the crime. In any event, this is Abimelech. So Abimelech gathers all the people. And of course, he's going to blame Abraham. What did you do? Something that's not, that should not be done. So there, after he blames Abraham, and now we pick up in the 10th pasuk of chapter 20. In short, why did you do this? What did you see? Interesting. What did you see here in, in, in doing this? The translation is, what was your purpose I'm not sure that I would translate what was your purpose. But what did you see? What caused you to behave in this horrible way to lie to me and to say that she is your sister? Which of course does not justify Abimelech grabbing her in the first place, but let's leave that out. In any event, 
Vayomer Abraham, now we have Abraham's answer. Kiyomarti, Rakin Yirat Elohim Bamakom Hazer. I said, or I thought it probably should be, there's no fear of God in this place. Varaguli Alvarishti, they will kill me on account of my wife. It is to say, they will take, they'll kill me, and then she won't be married anymore, and then they'll take her. That's what I was afraid of, which is exactly what Abram said way back in chapter 12. He said to Sarah, we're going down to a bad place and uh, say you're my sister in order that I live. Because if they say, if they think that we're married, they may just see you're beautiful, they'll get rid of me and they'll take you. We have that in chapter 12. And we also have it in chapter 26 with Yitzchak. When Yitzchak goes to, that goes to, but he's in the land of the Philistines. So we're told that, um, he says that Rivka is his, uh, is, is his sister, a, a repeat performance. He says she is my sister. And um, over there, Abimelech, the king, once again, the king of the Philistines, looks out the window. This is in chapter 26. Yitzhak was sporting with, fondling, sporting with his wife. So he sees it's not brother and sister. So he calls Yitzchak. He says, look, behold, she in fact is your, is, your, is, your, is your wife. Why did you say that she is your sister? I mean, one might ask the question, is that a capital offense? Okay, I said, she's my sister. What do you care? But he's peering out the window. So from, from his statement, you can see what he's thinking. And Yitzchak's answer. I was afraid I would die on account of her. Now, if you look earlier in chapter 26, you will see the people of this town, there's the people of the town inquired about his wife. He said, she is my sister. There's the people of the town. For he was afraid to say, my wife, lest the people of the place kill me on account of Rivka, for she is beautiful. Now that's actually a very interesting verse, that namely chapter 26, verse number uh, seven. So first of all, let's see the difference between Yitzchak in 26 and Abraham in chapter 20. There are many differences. The first is that in chapter 26, Yitzchak says she's my sister in response to a question. The people of the place, the men of the place ask about his wife. He says she's my sister. He was afraid. because the men of this place might kill me on account of Rivka. So he doesn't volunteer information. Whereas Abraham in chapter 20, the first thing he says in the beginning of chapter 20, as we saw last week, that's number one. Now there's another very important difference between the two stories, very important difference. And that is the following. This is a very important point, actually. That in chapter 20, the, the Torah, tells us what Avram says. We'll see this. He says, 
So he said, she's my sister. And now when Abimelech asked, why did you do this? He said, I was afraid. There's no fear of God. And they will kill me on account of my wife. That's what he says. And he said it also in chapter 12. And I think we can assume it's probably true. He probably was afraid. But what's interesting, we don't have any corroboration of that. We have his statement. Now, sometimes in the Torah, in the Tanakh, we have the narrator speaking. And sometimes the story is told only through its characters. The narrator does not take a, a, a kind of overt position, doesn't tell us explicitly. So in chapter 20, Avram says, she's my sister. Why did you say it? I was afraid. But in chapter 26, it's very interesting. In 26, we have the following. When the people inquire about Rivka, he said, she's my sister. And then Kiore Lomar Ishti is the, is, the, is, is the narrative voice of the Torah talking. For in fact, he was afraid to say wife. For he thought, lest they kill me on account of Rivka. So here's what we know. In chapter 26, we know what Yisfuk says is true. Because the Torah attests to the fact, testifies that what he said is actually the case. So when he says later, I said, there's no fear of God, they'll kill me. We know that's a true statement. Now in chapter 20 in our chapter, I'm not saying that what Avram says is not true. And there's good reason to think it is true. But we don't have the Torah saying, in fact, it is the case. And the reason that's important, first of all, because it seems to be a very fundamental difference between the two stories. But this leads us to the next point, where in, in which the, in response to the question, why did you do this thing? It would seem that that's a pretty good answer. In other words, I was afraid for my life. That probably is one of the better excuses one can give in terms of justifying behavior that otherwise is problematic. Of course, in the case of Abraham, it doesn't fully solve the problem for different reasons. Namely, unlike Yitzchak, and this is the big difference between Yitzchak of chapter 26 and Abraham in chapter 20, which is in chapter 26, which begins with a famine, Yitzchak sets out to go to Mitzrayim, like his father did. He's going to go to Mitzrayim. But before he ever gets to Mitzrayim, he stops off in the land of the Philistines. Stops off in the land of the Philistines. Avimelech's there. And God says to Yitzchak, in chapter 26, don't go to Mitzrayim. Don't, you don't go there. Maybe we'll discuss another time why you don't go there, but you don't go there. And then God said to Yitzchak in chapter 26, Gur ba'aretz hazot, ve'yeimcha ba'varchetka. Chapter 26, verse 3. Dwell in this land, in the land of the Philistines, to Gerar, exactly the same place Abram was. Avinoch melech klishtim Gerara. And it's actually interesting that it's the text, and this is interesting, that in chapter 26, it doesn't say he went to Gerar. So he went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines in Gerar. So I'll come back to that. Why it say he went to Abimelech? Sounds like he's doubtful going to Abimelech. But that's a, 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 on the way to Egypt. And God says to Yitzchak, stay in this land. I will be with you and I will bless you. So if we ask ourselves the question, why does Yitzchak find himself in the land of the Philistines? The answer is, well, because God told him to stay there. He was always stopping there on the way to Mitzrayim. 
but he finds himself in the land of the Philistines because God said explicitly, live in this land. <laughs> but if we ask ourselves the question, why does Avram live it, stay in the land of the Philistines? We're hard pressed to find an answer, especially given the fact that he said, it's a place in which there is no fear of God. And I was afraid they would kill me. So the obvious response would be, well, if you actually feel that way, why did you come here in the first place? There's no good answer to that question. I mean, one can, one can surmise, maybe every place is dangerous, but this place is dangerous. And he goes there nonetheless. Yitzchak is different. Yitzchak was told to stay there. God said that. So Yitzchak does what God commands. So when you line up the two stories, you know, the parallel stories bespeak not just parallels, but probably more importantly, they speak differences. When you find parallel stories, we have three of them here. What we're looking for is to understand the differences between them. And when you read chapter 26 in light of chapters 12 and chapter 20, Yitzchak comes out very well. You have a real appreciation for Yitzchak in contrast to Avram, especially of chapter 20, which is Avram's, I think, most problematic chapter. In any event, that's his first answer. Okay, I was afraid for my life. No fear of God. Remember that expression. Very important expression. To be God-fearing. Because, for example, when we get to chapter 22, which I do hope we get to uh, in these little sessions, Akedat Yitzchak, and uh, what was the purpose of the test? The Torah calls it a test. And the angel said to Abraham, do not hold back your hand. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> you are God-fearing. So apparently the purpose of the Akedah was for God to know, and we'll discuss what does it mean for God to know, was for Abraham to demonstrate, let's put it that way, that Avram is Yurei Elohim. That's the stated purpose of the Akedah, to be Yurei Elohim. Now in chapter 20, Avram said about the land in which he dwells, So the one who typifies for Avram a lack of Yirat Elohim is the land of the Philistines, and we would single out their esteemed leader, uh, Abimelech, as one who doesn't seem to have too much Yirat Elohim. That's the, so we have to keep that expression in mind. It's very important. That's what Avram answered. Okay, he shouldn't have gone there, but that's his answer. Of all possible answers, strikes me as the best possible answer. The problem is he doesn't stop. Avram continues in the next pasuk, which is verse number uh, 12. The Gam Amna, and also Amna in truth. In truth, he says in verse 12, She's a sister, the daughter of my father, but not my mother. She's a relative from my father's side, but not my mother. I took her as a wife. Now we have to, I'll just state the obvious. <clears throat> we puzzle over this answer. First of all, we puzzle over the answer. Since you gave one answer, which is the best answer you could possibly give. Why would you give a second answer? You answered already. I did it. I was afraid I'd get killed. That's why I did it. Okay, we understand that. But he doesn't stop there. He gives a second answer. But the second answer 
seems more problematic than the first answer because what is the answer? Why did you say that she is your sister? To which he answers, she really is my sister. She's sort of my half sister. If we take achoti to be not simply sister actually, but relative, because the word ach in the Torah often means a relative and not just a brother. So she is my relative. She's my achot, but from my father's side and not my mother's side, I took her as a wife. So Avila perhaps would say, okay, she's your sister. That's very lovely. And maybe she's your fourth cousin also, but she's also your wife. And in point of fact, last night God said to me, return the man's wife or else I'll kill you. So what do I care if she's also your sister? What kind of answer is this? Okay, she's your sister. Okay, you didn't, I didn't lie technically. Technically, what do you mean? But you did lie because you said sister, implying sister, but nothing else more than sister. But in fact, she's your wife. So how does this answer the question? So what is Avram actually saying? And by the way, when he says sister from my father's daughter and not my mother's, that's also interesting for another reason. What he seems to be saying is she's married, she's related to me through the father's side, but not through the mother's side, which is why I took her as a wife. In other words, why being a justification? How can you marry a sister? The presumption seems to be you don't marry a sister. But what is a sister? Is a sister a sister from the father's side? the mother's side, both sides, how does that work? What Avram seems to be suggesting is that she's only a sister from the father's side. She's only related to me from the father's side, which doesn't qualify as a relationship that forbids marriage. It's interesting because the Torah in the book of Ayikra, when it lists the prohibited relationships, the Torah dafka singles out over there, achoto, either from the father or the mother. Torah is explicit. It mentions both. The fact that the Torah mentions both in Vayikra suggests that the Torah is aware of the alternate possibility that, in fact, a forbidden relationship is only from the mother's side. The reason being, presumably, because you never really know what the father is. The mother, you pretty much know who it is. The father, how do you know? I mean, they don't have DNA testing. And in point of fact, actually, when you study the book of Shmuel, and you read the story of Amnon and Tamar, Tamar and Amnon are sister and brother from the father's side. They're both King David's children, but they have different mothers. And then when Amnon is about to assault Tamar, she says, listen, don't do this. Talk to the king and he'll, 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 he'll permit us, he'll permit me to be married to you effectively. So the question that the commentaries raise, of course, and the Gemara is that, what do you mean? But they're sisters, sister brother. But it is conceivable that the book of Shmuel, that's what I think actually, is not working with that assumption. I think the book of Shmuel works with a different assumption. This gets what it says in the Torah, leaving that aside. But the book of Shmuel seems to be assuming that sister and brother from the father's side is not actually forbidden. In any event, that's one possibility. There are other possibilities as well. But the problem is coming back to our verse, okay, she is your sister. I didn't lie when I said sister. What does that even mean, you know? But it is a lie. So what is Avram saying? So I, I, I would suggest the following as to what he's saying, and then I'll stop and take comments or questions. I think what he's saying is, look, I didn't lie to you. I said she's my sister. 
and that's what she is. We are brother and sister. It is true that I took her as a wife. If, by the way, if, as we had seen earlier in the year, if we accept, which I think could be the pshat, that Yiska and Sarah are the same person, Jessica. Yiska is the daughter of Haran who died. And if Yiska is Sarah, it means that Abraham took his niece, his, his fatherless niece, as together with Lot. She's Lot's sister then. And he sort of adopted them since they have no father. He's taking care of them. And then what he's saying is, you know, if you ask me who this woman is, she's my sister. It is true. I took her as a wife. You know, we check into the hotel. We take one room, not separate rooms or whatever. I take care of her. She's with me. But I don't see her as a wife. She's fundamentally a sister. I didn't lie to you. She's my sister. Yes, I took her as a wife. I don't see it that way. That, I think, is what it means. But of course, if that is what it means, it's rather remarkable, given the fact that in chapter 17, God has says to Abraham, this woman, Sarah, who you should call Sarah, is going to be the mother of the covenantal child. She's going to be the, the uh, foremother of kings, and she is your covenantal partner. That's what God said in chapter 17. And then it would be exceedingly odd if Abraham insists in chapter 20 that she really is my sister. But in any, any event, it's odd. Because he did say sister, and she is taken once again. So no matter how we understand it, it's problematic. But the simple meaning here, I think, is what he's saying is, I didn't lie to you. I told you the truth. And this verse, verse number 12, has a very little important word for us. Chapter 20, verse number 12, it's the first word in the verse. And the word is begam, and also. We had pointed out last week that the word begam is one of Avimelech's favorite words, right? Hagoi gam tzadik taro, he said to God, what kind of God are you anyway? You kill righteous nations too? Sodom is one thing, but a tzadik? What kind of God, what is this? And not only that, he said, she's my sister, but he gum he omra and she also gum. So he's filled with gums. He has a million excuses. Excuse man. And when God speaks to Avimelech, he makes fun of it. And God says to Avimelech, Gamanochi Yodati. I also know. Gamanochi in verse number six. God has the double gum. You want to come to me with two gums? I'll come to you back with two gums. And now, remarkably, we have Avram talking. Here's, here's answer number one. You don't like that answer? I got answer number two, gum, right? I got two answers for you. I got another gum. In other words, he's talking Avimelech's language. And now just one more verse, and then I'll stop and take comments and questions. And then Avim continues in verse number 13. Ever says Avram, ever since God has caused me hitu, what is a to'er? A to'er is a wanderer an aimless wanderer. Ever since we wander aimlessly, the word toeh appears at least two other places in Breshit, and uh, perhaps three, but two places are explicit, is when Yaakov sends Yosef to find his brothers in chapter 37, Joseph gets lost, and somebody finds Joseph. He's lost. He's wandering aimlessly lost. He can't find his brothers. 
And it's not about lack of sense of direction. A toer is not about a bad sense of direction. Direction in a different sense, yes. You don't know where you're headed. You're off, you're off the path. That's the toer of Joseph in 37. And the next chapter we'll get to next week, I hope, chapter 21, when Hagar is sent out, Vatelech Vateta. She wanders in the desert of Beersheba. It's a person with no direction. So what Avram says over here, ever since we have been wandering aimlessly, a remarkable statement on Avram's part, ever since God caused us to be to'eh, to wander, I said, I said to her, this is the kindness you should show me. Please show me this kindness. Every place to which we come, Imri really say to me, means you're probably about me, say about me, he is my brother. So in other words, this is answer number three. We have three answers to the question, why did you lie and say sister when she's in fact your wife? A, afraid for my life. B, that is our relationship, it's brother-sister primarily. I took her for a wife too. She's my sister. And then we have answer number three, which we all have heard many times in our own lives. Why did you do this? Terrible thing. And the answer is, we always do it. We've done this for 20 years already, ever since we wandered. We do this every place we go, right? That's the, that's the justification we often hear. Why are you doing this thing? We've done, it, we've done it forever. And of course, that's no justification whatsoever. The Gemara says exactly the opposite. The Gemara asks the question, suppose you start eating and you forgot to make a bracha. You're eating food and you didn't, you didn't make a blessing. What should you do? Should you continue to eat without a blessing or should you make the blessing now? The Gemara says, what kind of question is that? A person who eats garlic means doesn't smell good. Should continue the same path? Okay, you made a mistake, correct it. What does it mean to do? We always do it. So this is, and it comes in, in conjunction with since ever since we wandered aimlessly. So the point is three answers. Now, whenever anybody gives you three answers to a question, there are times uh, where there are three good answers, actually, sometimes. But often, when somebody gives three answers, somebody gives three excuses, usually, or I would say often, uh, none of them are really that good. And I would add that usually, in my experience, when somebody gives you three different answers to a question, why did you or not do, or did not do something, the true answer is actually none of the three. The true answer is something else. When God says to Moshe, go back to, go to Egypt and save your brothers, I can't speak, probably won't believe me, I don't know your name, you know, all of that. There are a billion terutsim. God answers all the terutsim. And Moshe says at the end, send somebody else, which means those aren't the real reasons. The real reasons are not explicit and not stated. There are other reasons why. Probably because he's happy where he is. He doesn't particularly like the people who indirectly or directly cause him to flee Mitzrayim. That's the real reason. The others are we call Terutsin. So over here we have three answers. In other words, here's the point. Abraham and Abimelech are talking the same language. They're talking the same language, and that's a problem because Avram 
can't be, if he's going to be our hero, can't be an Avimelech character. But they, they're talking the same way. The two begamas, they have excuse makers. Excuse makers justifying it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the question is, how does Abraham get out of this morass? And what the Torah is setting up, I mean, let me be even more explicit about this. In the Abraham narrative, there are two main foils to Abraham. One is Lot, and the other is Abimelech. And as I mentioned, I believe last week in two of our books of our canon, each of those books picked up on one of those two foils and built a story around it, or largely around it. The book of Ruth is built around Abraham's foil, Lot. Ruth is from Lot. She's a Lot who's opposite of Lot. She's a Lot who takes in the strangers. She's a Lot who, who uh, is willing to accompany Naomi, even if it means her death. It's not the opposite of Lot. She's a Moabite who's not a Moabite. They didn't give us food when we left Mitzrayim. Ruth brings the food, the chesed. So she's the Moabite by birth, who's the anti-Moabite. And she says, she's described as being Abraham's daughter. She left her home and she traveled elsewhere. She's the true daughter of Abraham. So being the anti-Lot means being the Abraham. That's the book of Ruth. But there's another book in our canon in which the foil to that person, like Abraham, are the Philistines. He's like the Philistines, but he's not like the Philistines. And of course, obviously, that's the book of Shmuel. That's David HaMelech. David is, lives among the Philistines, supported by the Philistines, fights with the Philistines, acts like the Philistines, but he's not the Philistine. And the parallels between Abraham and Abimelech and David and the push team are very striking. And we'll get to that later on. I can't spend too much time on Shmuel, but the parallels are very, very striking. Uh, in the book that's gonna come out hopefully soon in Hebrew, that was the uh, book on Shmuel. That's the Buell book on Shmuel uh, coming out in about a month. I, that's one of the key ideas in the book to demonstrate how the book of Shmuel uses the Abraham stories to describe David. He is a Philistine, but he's not a Philistine. He's, he manages to separate himself as Avram does. But there are all kinds of interesting connections between the two. So let me stop at this point, take comments or questions, and then we will uh, continue. So if anybody has comments or questions, uh, please speak up. I just like him. Yes? Yes. Okay. It, it always appears to me as if the idea of erva or an illicit relationship seems to wind its way into the idea of not just covenant, but ultimate redemption like Mashiach. So it, it may start with, with Lot and his daughters, Moab, uh, with uh, 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 Rus coming from, from this line, Yehuda and Tomar, uh, David and Bathsheba. Right seems to go on and on. And even in Christianity, the idea that Jesus is born from an illicit relationship, there's no father here, or Moshe at the beginning, his father is unknown. This seems to be a quality that at least appears to me that relates itself to ultimate redemption. Uh, even Shabtai Tzvi, he, he felt the same way that unless he had some illicit 
relationship with another woman, he couldn't be the Mashiach. So right. I, I'd just like to know whether you, whether, you know, you, well, what your comment is on that, that, that idea of Erevor being related to, to redemption. Well, first of all, I completely agree with you. That is something very deep in our tradition. I think Shabtai Svi was a different. There's an interesting essay by Gershom Sholem about called the uh, the holiness of sin. Right. And for Shabtai Svi, it had to do dafka with doing averos for him was right. redeeming the sparks within. And that's Shabtai Svi. My answer is I completely agree with you. I thought about this a lot. I have nothing to add to right now. I mean, it requires. I have to think about it some more and come up with, I mean, I totally agree with you that it's very, it's very there. But what exactly it, you know, they, and different people have made all kinds of suggestions, including the idea that in terms of leadership or kingship, that in order to have a king, that kingship is problematic. So in order to have the, the true king can come only from, from, a, from, a, from a holy place. Kingship is such a, an institution that involves dealing with the real world with the alma de shikra, with the you know with the forces of the world, with the lovens of the world, with the ephrons of the world, with the avimelos, etc. And in order to deal with them, you need to be you need to that other quality, that kind of quality of, of deception or or of uh, you know of uh, somehow coming from a kind of impure place. That's one line of thought that I think others have developed. I don't have much to add to it, so therefore I'm not going to say anything except to say that you hit on a, something that is clearly there and, and something to think about more deeply when it comes to kingship or when it comes in general. But I think it's true and I think the Christians picked up on it as well. Um, okay, anybody else to uh, thank you for the comment? Anybody else? Yeah, sec I, you're, you're, the second, ra go ahead. No, you go ahead. The second right. ration, the se okay, the second rationalization, I'm surprised that you didn't actually pick up and 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 highlight the um, the um, the the language not being responsible language but being passive language. But to Healy Leisha, could be could be so. He also puts it in terms of I said to you, this is what you should be saying. You know, every place you go, you say he is my brother. So I well, think I mean that, that circumstantially, she was foisted on me as my wife. But it was circumstantial. It wasn't my fault. I, I, it wasn't. It wasn't vayikach isha. Right. No, I agree with you. I think that's true. I think that. Look, I think in general, when you give a lot of excuses, it's all part of the same thing. You give excuses. There is no excuse in this case. It's obviously, I think, from the Torah standpoint, extremely problematic. So the best way is to let me let me let me, let me even reframe it a bit. Let me, let me just, the question, what did you do, right? The question, what did you do, Me'asita, is a question that appears in the book of Breshit many times. The first, first time God uses those words, Me'asita, is when God speaks to the Isha after, after eating of the forbidden fruit. What did you do, Me'asita? And her answer is, the snake seduced me, which plays off the word Isha. So when God said to Adam, what did you do? God, Adam's answer was, when God says to the Isha, what did you do? And that's the beginning of, when we say, of, 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 of human history, 
It starts with it starts with not taking responsibility. He didn't take responsibility. She doesn't take responsibility. And that question, what did you do, is asked in many forms in the book of Breshit. And I think what's very important to, uh, to understand, in my view, is that Avimelech is a complete sleazeball. He's a phony from top to bottom and a dangerous phony because he always talks of high morality. He's not like, Paro doesn't deal with morality too much, but Avimelech's always talking to him like my glove on. It's not right, it's not right, you know, that kind of thing. So that's true that he's a bad guy, but that still doesn't remove the responsibility from the other party to simply tell the truth. In the case of Avraham in chapter 20, it's another example of when someone says, what did you do? Of not giving 100% the right answer. And you have several examples. I don't want to go through it now in Breshit, where the question is, what did you do? Whether it's Avimelech who asked the question, whether it's Lovin who asked the question. And the answer is never fully satisfying answer till you come to the end of the book. And there's one fellow who has the right answer, and that's Yehuda. When, what did you do? And Yehuda says, I have nothing to say. We are, we are guilty. He even confesses the sin that he knows they didn't even do in terms of stealing the goblet. What did you do? The answer is we have no words. We, have, we can't justify ourselves. That's the person who becomes the king. So the idea of confession, uh, it might be related to the previous comment as well. The, the assumption of the Bible in general, certainly the book of Shmuel, is that people in power, everybody is fallible, but people in power are more prone to make mistakes because they have power, because they can get other people to do the dirty work for them, because they get an inflated sense of self and all kinds of other reasons. So more than anybody else, it's important that the king be somebody who is able to say khatati. And in fact, it's interesting that when the Torah speaks of kingship, it talks about irat Elohim. He has the Torah, he should read it in order to have fear of God. So fear of God is essential for everybody, but especially for the king. So I completely agree with what you're saying, but and the, all these terutsim are problematic within the bigger picture of the book of Breshit. In other words, the let me put it to you this way, and I'll move on to something else, but the, 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 the when I say the, the, the original sin of the Bible is twofold. One is it's eating of the forbidden fruit. That's one sin. But the biggest sin is something else. The biggest sin is, or the missed opportunity is saying, so-and-so, someone else is, is, uh, is, is responsible. Adam's first answer, the woman that you put by my side, you can hear Avimelech talking. It's the other guy's fault. And frankly, God, I got a problem with you. You put her by my side. You're coming to me. Have you ever looked in the mirror? You're the one who put her by my side. So he's responsible. You're responsible. She's responsible. Everybody but me. That's Avimelech. Other Marisha is Avimelech. And that's the primal sin. And that's one of the things the book of Breshit deals with in all the stories. And the important point is, it doesn't matter who asks the question. Some of the best questions are asked by very bad people, but still good questions. You know, the Russia at the Seder asks a very good question. Why is this relevant to my life? It's a wonderful question, actually. We don't like the way he says it. Okay. Doesn't mean it's a bad question. What do you want to say, Mike? Uh, I just, uh, it seemed to me that um, there might be a, a little bit of a, a, a positive for what Avraham is saying, uh, which is namely that 
he is defending his Sara. He's defending his wife. And not only is he defending his wife, he's anticipating a, uh, I think Faro did this, uh, you know, blaming Sarah also. So he, he here is uh, basically anticipating that and saying, because he's, he's talking about what, I asked her to do this. So, you know, if, if she says anything, it's, uh, I, you know, it's my responsibility, not her responsibility. Right, the only thing, I don't really see in, in Abimelech's speech where he blames Sarah. No, yeah. he doesn't. He's anticipating that. Uh, maybe, so, maybe he anticipates it, but it's, you know, Melisita, which of course is exactly what God says to the Isha in the first, there is the Isha actually. But over here, I would say it's... Pharaoh did both. He, first he blamed Abraham, then he blamed Sarah. And Abraham here is defending Sarah. Even, uh, uh, and uh, you know, he didn't have to, what's he, what's he, uh, it's not just that I, I'm always did it. I asked her to do this. So he's, there's something... No, I hear what you're saying, that maybe there's a silver, some silver lining here in terms of Abram's speech. Okay, could be. Um, Anybody else? Could, um, I, I must, be, I'm sorry. Uh, could it be that chapter 26, when Yitzchak goes to Gerar, it's, uh, and Avimelech again, it really emphasizes what you've been saying. Avimelech didn't learn from the uh, 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 situation with Avraham. Uh, as opposed to Avraham, who learned by the time of the Akedah, uh, Yirat Elohim. So the emphasis here is even within uh, Israel, not just Egypt, that um, there's a strong possibility of simply repeating the past and not learning uh, from the lessons of the past. Yeah, I think that actually is, that's what I want to get to. <laughs> I think that's true, and I think we'll see that either this week or beginning of next week, that is one of the critical points. I think Avram does change. Avimelech is the same guy. But let me just say now, uh, one that, that you've hit on what is actually, I think, very central idea. <coughs> to appreciate Avram's change or transformation, which takes place at the end of chapter 21 before the Akedah, we have to, we see that, we'll see that very clearly. But just to speak about the end of chapter 21, this is an important point. End of chapter 21, and we'll get to probably next week, but is where Avraham uh, and Avimelech have some kind of treaty, they have a brief covenant. And in that covenant, Avimelech says to Avraham, I want you to swear to me that you will treat my descendants properly. In Tishkoli, Ulanini, Ulanachti, in chapter 21. Chesed, the same way I've been so good to you, <coughs> the chesed I've done to you, do to me and with the land. Avram says, I will, I, Avram swears. <coughs> now, so Avimel says to Avram, listen, I impose upon you an oath that you will take care of my descendants. Now, they, and they make a treaty, a covenant, a bridge, which presumes, of, even though Avimel does all the talking, the covenant is two-sided. So you take care of my descendants, and by implication, I take care of your descendants. <laughs> so Yitzchak goes to Avimelech in chapter 26, then, for a very simple reason. Avimelech has sworn, in effect, to take care of Abraham's children. And one of Abraham's children is Yitzchak. We discover in chapter 26 that, first of all, Avimelech is not interested in helping Yitzchak. He ends up deporting Yitzchak. Furthermore, that all the wells that Avram had dug, after the death of Avram, the Philistines stopped up all the wells. 
and they also try to steal Yitzchak's wells. So the point Excuse is- Excuse me, David, could you yes. just reposition your uh, camera? Because we only see your forehead sometimes. Oh, you can't see me. Let me see if I can. Oh, that's great. That's better? Thank okay. you. Okay. Much better. Sorry. Right. Thank you. So um, yeah, so my point is that um, the reason he goes to Avimelech, I think in chapter 26 is because Avimelech has sworn I'm going to be kind to the descendants of Abraham. It turns out, <laughs> which is which is why Avimelech didn't grab Rivka in the first place. That could be, that could be, and the fact of the matter is that it is that is possible. There could be other reasons as well. We'll get to, get to Yitzchak. Uh, we'll talk about that. But in point of fact, what typifies Avimelech are two things. Now, one is he's a person. I'm assuming all the Avimelechs are essentially the same. Like all the pharaohs are the same. Circumstances may change. Pharaohs are always the same. There are no good pharaohs in the Bible. They're all the same. If they need you, they're good to you. When they don't need you, they're not good to you. But the point is, if you think about Abimelech, what typifies him is two things. He's a person that Abraham and Yitzchak both say, it's possible they'll kill me and they'll take my wife. And number two, what typifies him is he's a guy who doesn't keep any of his commitments. He violates his oath. Now, if we, and I don't want to get into this right now, but if we think of a character in the Bible who kills the husband and takes the wife, and when it comes to oaths, has a very shaky record of keeping his oaths, there's one such character in the Bible we're very familiar with, and his name is at least one of the instantiations of this person in the book of Shmuel in the beginning of Sefer Malachim, is named David, without question. He's a great oath. And he violates the oath, it's interesting, not explicitly, technically speaking, he might even keep the oath. But, you know, the last we hear about David is, Shimi ben Gera, you know, I swore I wasn't going to harm him. You'll figure out a way to get him. You know, that kind of thing. So, and it's not just that. So my point is, coming back to the point about how later books of the Bible use the Abraham narrative, David and the push team, it's very complex. I can't, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily interesting. But coming back to Chaim's point, the first point is, which is one of the key points, which is, yes, there's going to be a, a difference between Abraham and, and, um, and Abimelech. And that will take place at the end of chapter 21. We're going to appreciate that, that break from Abimelech, where Abraham is different. But in order to really appreciate it, we have to look at the commonalities of chapter 20 and the commonalities, the way they talk, the, the excuse making and all of that, which is in the book of Breshi, the primal sin in my view. This is the real sin. Because the Torah doesn't expect anybody to be infallible. Everybody makes mistakes. And actually the downfall of, 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 the, of the first king of Israel, of Shaul HaMelech, was not so much failing to carry out the directive of, 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 of killing Amalek, Okay, he spared some of the animals, but the excuses he makes afterwards. He has all the, the people did it, the people did it, the people did it. And the answer is, well, that's not an excuse for you. The king can't say the people did it. You are the leader, we, the people did it. That's an indictment of you. So in other words, that story, which has all kinds of interesting parallels to the Gadeta narrative, speaks very well to leadership, kingship, leadership. So Abraham is, disappoints us in this chapter because he's talking like Avimelech. He has the old Vigam. So now let's just continue, pick up a little bit now. And um, yeah, let's pick up this, our story and we'll, I think, well, I'll stop a few minutes before the end and take other comments as well. 
We're up to chapter, so we're now back to uh, chapter 20, verse number 14. It says, So he, he, he gives him all kinds of gifts and he returns his wife. And he says, my land is open to you. Settle wherever you please. Is by Yoshev. He returns and shame. You stay with me. This land is, land is my land is your land. Settle wherever you please. Now we have the next verse, which is remarkable. Who is Sarah Amar? Now he turns to Sarah. With this verse, you want to jump out of your seat. Behold, I have given your brother a thousand kesef. Your brother. God had said, God had said explicitly to Abimelech, return the man, she's a married woman. She's a married woman, right? Return the man, the woman to her husband. Abimelech turns to Sarah, I gave your husband a thousand kesef. This will be a literally covering of the eyes. Kasute Naim, a covering of the eyes. Okay, cover up. For all that are with you. In other words, if someone says what happened, you were disgraced, he had to pay a fine of a thousand kesem. So, in other words, it's a vindication of sort. The eight kolvenochachet, very difficult expression. Kolvenochachet, very difficult. Here they translate, you are cleared before everyone. A nochachet could be a vindication, actually, or a tochacha. So in other words, I wanted to focus, before I could focus on that expression, I want to simply point out that what Avram has done essentially is given Abimelech the opportunity to justify himself. I've given your brother a thousand kesef. So it's clear that when Avram said his second terence, she really is my sister. So Abimelech picks that up. I didn't take a, I, I took a sister. She's just actually, Okay, sister, I gave your brother a thousand kesef. When Avram is not given Abimelech the opportunity to continue his story, the story is mistakes, mistakes were made, you know, mistakes were made. And this is the brother, brother, sister. Okay. And this will serve as no chachet to everybody that's with you. That's as far as Abimelech and Avram. So now Avram was, God said, give him back the, give him his wife back, who will pray for you. He's a prophet. And the prophet is one who prays for the people. Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest Navi. Moshe Rabbeinu prays for us. And he prayed for them. And Abimelech and his wife and his slaves, the women, bought children. Well, says the Torah, God had stopped Otsar, Otsar, Otsar Hashem. None of the women were able to give birth on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. It's gratuitous. It could have said on account of Sarah. Now the Torah adds, on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So that's an appropriate punishment for taking the wife. So the women won't give birth. Would make less sense for taking a sister. The Torah is screaming. Remember what God had said from beginning to end. The chapter is framed by one idea. Sarah is Abraham's wife, not just Abraham's wife, any old wife. She's the wife of Abraham, and she's the covenantal partner of Abraham. 
And when Avram speaks in chapter 20, she really is my sister. It's remarkable. So when you read the chapter, you say to yourself, something's got to change here. I mean, how's somebody's got, this is a major, major problem. And this is, the, one might say, the low point. This is absolutely the low point. Now, let me make one other comment about a word that appears in the chapter. And uh, the word is a strange word, v'yekol v'nochachet, nochachet, right? That's in the end of, that's the end of uh, verse number, um, verse number 16, verse number 16, kol v'nochachet. So the word nochachet is a very interesting word. In other words, words are interesting, first of all, you always have to know what does the word mean? You look, up it, look it up in a dictionary, okay? But words have a meaning apart from a dictionary definition. In a text, and especially a text like Breshit, the words are functioning within a certain context. So the word nochachet is a very interesting word. First of all, the word nochachet, and we're going to jump to the end of chapter 21, because we meet Abimelech a second time. The stories of Abraham in general are double stories. The two Avimelech stories, they're two road stories, they're, you know, they're, they're two Yishmael uh, stories, they're two Lechlechas, they're all double stories. And we meet Avimelech at the end of chapter 21. Avimelech will come out with his general and he wants to make a treaty with Abraham. And we'll deal with this next week. But Avimelech wants to make a treaty. You know, he starts. He does all the talking. He's going to impose on Abraham, I've been so good to you, I have so much chesed, and you have to be kind to me as well. I don't want you to deceive me or any of my descendants. I want you to swear to this. I want you to take an oath. Take an oath. You can't, you can't break, violate an oath. Says Abraham, I swear. And then, before he does all this, all the swearing, he says, uh, it says uh, in verse number 25 of chapter 21. Let's just take a look at that. Chapter 21, verse 25. Here we have in a different form. Abraham rebukes Abimelech. He rebukes Abimelech. He says, He says to Abimelech, I'm happy to make a treaty with you, but before we sign a treaty, I have to tell you something. Your servants are stealing my water. This takes place later also with Yitzchak, where they steal the water of Yitzchak and they stop up the wells of Abraham. This is a bad guy, okay? I'll make a treaty with you, a Brit, everything, but I have to tell you, your servants are stealing my water. You can't enter, we have to enter into a treaty in good faith with each other, but you're your, your people are gazlanin, they're stealing. Now we have the Abimelech response, and we could write it ourselves, but the Torah wrote it for us. By Yomer Abimelech, here's his answer. I don't know who did this. You come to me, you make a claim. I have no evidence of this. I have known nothing about it, zero, never heard of it before. That's what you say? Okay, we'll have to, have to investigate. Just to stop with that. He could say, well, I don't know. Well, if it's right, it's right. And now, of course, he continues. The gum. He's the gum man. Also, I got a second point. The gum, the gum I told, oh, he got it to me. 
And also, you didn't tell me. What do you mean? You didn't say he didn't know. What's with the gamma tolo? He got it late. It means what? What's wrong with you? You didn't tell me. It's your fault. You should have told me. If people are stealing, you have to tell me, right? That's the gamma tolo. He got it. And I know nothing about it. I've never heard of it. And it, if it be true, it's your fault. You didn't tell me. The gum. But of course, he's not going to stop with one gum. He's a two gum man. <laughs> gum lo yadati, right? The gum, he says, he continues the gum. The gum, anochi lo shamati bilti ayom. And also, first time hearing of it. Of course, we'll deal. Of course, we're going to deal with it. I never heard of it till today. Checks in the mail. I'm going to deal with it. But he has all the terutsim. Never heard of it. It's your fault for not telling me. We'll start immediately on. We're starting to investigate immediately. A committee is going to be summoned this afternoon to investigate, you know? Here's all the Tehutsin. Here's every answer, right? The true answer was, I'm the king. People are stealing. I'm responsible, of course. It's my fault. My, my, my problem. No, no, no. It's always somebody else, you know? It's your fault for that. We'll deal with it in the future. Never heard of it. He has all the guts. In other words, here's the point, as Chaim said. Avimelech stays the same. There's no change in Avimelech. He's the God man of 20, he's the God man of 21. He doesn't actually interest us. He's very interesting and almost funny, but the one we care about is not Avimelech. We care about Avraham. And somehow in chapter 21, Avraham comes across differently. He's a different person because he doesn't play these games anymore. In chapter 20, he received from Avimelech all kinds of gifts. Avimelech said, you stay in my land we're, because we're kindred spirits. You belong in my land, mister. I can, I can see you fit right in, you know? And I'm going to give you all kinds of things. Told him, but he gives him all kinds of gifts. But in 21, after Avimelech is rebuked by Abraham, right? There it says, Abraham He gives Avimelech back the Tzonu Bakar. And they make a covenant. And Avram sets aside Sheva Kvasov. He sets aside these seven uh, lambs by themselves. Avimoch says to Avram, Mohena, what are these seven lambs? Sheva Kvasota Eva, Sheritzavta Levadana. Why have you set aside the seven lambs? Vayomer, he had Sheva Kvasoti, Kachmi Yadi, take the seven lambs, Sheva Kvasot, Bavut Yawiwi Eda. This will be testimony, a testament to the fact. This well belongs to me. Therefore, the place is called Be'er Sheva. The place was called Be'er Sheva. Now, we'll get to Be'er Sheva next week or in the future. Be'er Sheva is a very important place in the book of Breshit. figures in three stories. Avram, it figures again with Avram later. It figures, figures with Yaakov. It's very important. Be'er Sheva. Why is the place called Beersheba? Because the two of them took an oath. Two of them took an oath. Now the word Sheva, which means seven, and the word Shvua, which means oath, are related terms. They are deeply connected to each other. And here you see it straight up because he sets aside Sheva Kvasot, but the place is called Beersheba. We would have said Sheva because there was Sheva Kvasot. But the Torah says, Kisham right. 
Now, let me make one last point for now. We'll continue next week with the story here, and then we'll continue, go back to the beginning of 21, birth of Yitzchak. And this all ends, and I also next week want to pick up with the word Benochachet. Here they have Benochiach, and the word Benochachet is a very interesting word in the book of Breshit, how, how the Torah uses the word. But I want to, let me end with one last point over here, and that is that Avraham lives in Beersheba, and Beersheba is his place, it says, right? Hafrati, and that's where they make the treaty. And it says, Vayokam Avimelech Ufichos HaTzvao, in verse number 32, Vayashuvu Eretz Pushtim, they go back to the land of the Philistines. It sounds like Beersheba is not the land of the Philistines, right? Then you read the next two verses, that Abraham plants a tree in Beersheba, Vayita Eshel Beersheba, we'll get to this next week, we'll pick this up. And he cries out to the everlasting God. And the last verse of chapter 21, Vayogar Avraham Eretz Prishtim Yamim Rabim. So Abraham dwelt in the land of the Philistines for a long time. So where does Abraham live? Does he live in the land of the Philistines? Or does he not live in the land of the Philistines? What is Beersheba? Is Beersheba in the land of the Philistines? Or it's not in the land of the Philistines? When you read the Chumash, you get a mixed message over here. It says he dwelt in the land of the Philistines for a long time. It says Avimelech went back to the land of the Philistines. Sounds like Beersheba is not the land of the Philistines. So what is it? Is he in the land of the Philistines or is he not in the land of the Philistines? And I would argue that what the Chumash is su suggesting to us is that on one hand, he separates from Abimelech, but there's not a full separation yet. He's still in the land of the Philistines. Something else has to happen for Abraham to break from Abimelech, to fully make the break from Abimelech. And of course, it's not just about where he lives geographically. Avram has already begun to break away from Abimelech at the end of chapter 21. He gives him back the Tzon of Bakar. But the full break has not happened yet. And my argument would be that the Akedah is the place where Abraham and Avimelech truly part ways. Let me just end by, before I take a couple of minutes for comments, we have a similar, a parallel situation, situation elsewhere in the Bible where somebody lives in a city and it's not clear whether that city is a Jewish city or a Philistine city. Who happens to know what city that is? is Somebody lives Lord? in the city. What is it? Is it Tziklag? No. It is Tziklag, is correct. The city of Tziklag. Tziklag is listed in the Yoshua as one of the cities of the, of, the, of, the, of the Jews. When you read the book of Shmuel, when David takes residence in Tziklag, when he runs away to the Philistines, first he lives in the capital city. Then he says to Achish, the king of God, I don't, why should I be in the, king, in the capital city with the king? So he has his own little city. So clearly it's under the province of the Pushtim. On the other hand, the book of Shmuel says, therefore David dwelt in Siklag, therefore is Siklag the city of the Israel, Israel, Israelite kings until this very day. And the city of Siklag, which David inhabits, on one hand, you could say is separate from the Philistines. On the other hand, it's clearly in the narrative context, part of the Philistines. And that speaks to David actually. That's one of the big questions. David lives amongst the Philistines. David actually is invited to go to war against Israel, and he starts to walk with the Philistines. 
what is David? Is he a is he a Jew? Is he a Philistine? What is he? And that is a big question, actually, in the book of Shmuel. That is to say, of course, he's not a Philistine in that sense, but he lives amongst them. He gets support from them. He takes refuge there, etc., etc. So the book of Shmuel, which sees David as related to Abraham, and for good reason, maybe I'll get to why they chose Abraham specifically. It's exactly the same question. David and Siklag, Avram and Beersheba. It's exactly the same question. Is it Pushtim? Or is Beersheba not of the place? And you get a mixed message as we read it. So I'll stop over here for next week. I want to get back to the Rochiach, how the word functions in Breshit. Other comments more about the end of chapter 21. Then we'll jump back to chapter, begin uh, chapter 21 and next week. Now, if you have comments or questions, I'll be happy to entertain them now. I wanted to ask you, um, you had uh, spoken about the wine and yes. you had painted a, a picture that wine is um, leads to uh, negative activities, let's say. And yet we use wine in Kiddush and we, you know, wine was brought with all the carbonate. So it That's seems right. to me playing with fire here. How did, when did that turn take, you know? Well, I don't know. I mean, at the point is, I would say that can't beat Malki Tzedek. Right. Hotzi, right. Malki Tzedek, wine is sacramental. There's no question about it. Wine is sacramental. On the other hand, the people who, who bring the sacraments are not allowed to drink. Let's, let's not forget that. Right. Wine is our tradition, I think, in, understands wine in moderate. You have drinking on Purim, and there's no on question. Pesach. The, on Pesach. On Pesach, but on Purim, you have drinking a lot of wine. Which is actually, in my view, in terms of the Megillah, so a negative. Because you got Mishdeh Basimcha in the in the Megillah is Salachashverosh, you know. Look, in moderation, it's, you know, Yain is as. Yisamach lived enough. Yisamach, and not only that, you know, unless Rashi quotes it, the Nazir is guilty for not, for not drinking wine in right. moderation. But when you drink too much wine, it dulls the senses. And I once had a conversation with a guy who's the head of, of Beit Israel, and we were sitting at a wedding together in his uh, in his place. They're not allowed to drink. There's no there's no uh, alcoholic beverages. He said to us, he said, you know, it dulls the senses. We're here to study to think, and something that dulls the senses, we are opposed to. I'm not personally opposed to drinking wine. I am deeply opposed to drinking excessive wine and making a, a, a fetish out of drinking wine. And Kavachom and vodka. I know it's done in certain circles. They valorize drinking and stuff like that. I think it's problematic. And I think the tradition says it's problematic. But, you know, traditions are reinterpreted over time. But I think that, so in the book of Breshit, wine, if you look at the stories, they are there essentially to dull the sense of the other person with the intention of, of, of fooling. Them. Deception. Deception. And we know very well that people who either drugging or drinking, what it can lead to, and people often become victimized by others when you know stuff is dropped into their drinks or they're given too much to drink or whatever it is because we're not, uh, don't have our wits about us. So I think in the book of Breshi, that's clear to me that that is a danger. Let's put it that way, it's a danger. Again, if it's not done in excessively, if it's done in moderation, Part of Kiddush Aliyayin, I mean, it's a, it's a mitzvah, and it's, it's sanctifying the, 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 the material. It's very, very basic to Judaism, obviously. But, uh, you know, and uh, 
Yeah, so there's a lot to say about that. When exactly, how, how it's seen over time is an interesting question, but I'm, I'm just confining myself to the Book of Breshit, where it's certainly seen as dangerous, for sure, or potentially dangerous. Anybody else for a comment? I must say a personal confession, Rabbi Silver, that this is one of the deepest lessons I learned from you, that it's not only important whom you choose as your friend, but even more whom you choose as your enemy, because you find yourself sooner or later that you are like him. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> <laughs> Words of wisdom from the dawn. No, thank uh, you. It was very useful. <laughs> All right, so we'll stop over here then. Um, we'll stop now. So next week, we'll continue with the end of 21, and we'll, then we'll go back to the beginning of chapter 21, the birth of Yitzchak, looking forward to it. Looking forward to that, and looking forward to meeting again next week, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you back here again next week.